The ingredients for today's episode are Tritico, Pathos, and Soco. I'm Andy Anderson, the mischievous maestro, and we're mixing up the perfect combination. In the theater, there are rules that must be followed. Make audiences interested, surprise them, make them cry, or make them laugh. These are the terms and the artistic principles that Puccini laid out and used to help guide him in the composition of his trilogy of one-act operas, Il Tritico. It took several years to carry out this project, with the earliest mention going back to the days of Tosca. Puccini wrote in November of 1905, quote, If I find three one-act works that suit me, I'll put off Marie Antoinette. He was speaking, of course, of the idea for work that he kept coming back to throughout his career, an opera based on Marie Antoinette. Side note, Giulio Ricordi, Puccini's original publisher and mentor, advised the composer not to write a triptych. It was only after Giulio's death in 1912 that Puccini was able to seriously consider the project. Puccini drew inspiration for writing a triptych from one of his favorite literary works, Dante's The Divine Comedy, itself a triptycho. The three sections of Dante's work are titled Inferno, Hell, Purgatorio, Purgatory, and Paradiso, Paradise. Dante was born in 1265 and died in 1321. His work, The Divine Comedy, which is often considered the greatest work in Italian literature, is a long Italian narrative poem. The work was started in 1308 and finished in 1320, one year before the author's death. My friends, we're getting ready to talk a lot about a lot of drama and a lot of history of opera, and moving forward in the process of opera. So it's at this point that I think this is a good time to have a cocktail. So here we are. We're going to make a mid-Atlantic crisis. Why a mid-Atlantic crisis? Well, you'll hear more about it later in the episode, but Puccini was not able to attend the world premiere of Il Tritico because of dangers of a Atlantic crossing from Europe to America. The Mid-Atlantic Crisis is a drink that comes from Pat O'Brien's in New Orleans in the French Quarter. If you look online, you will find several variants of the recipe, but the recipe that I'm going to teach you now and the recipe that we're going to be drinking is the recipe from Pat O'Brien's. One night while hanging out and after having several of these cocktails, I finally convinced one of the bartenders there to give me the recipe, and I've had it with me for well over 25 years. It's one of my favorite drinks, so here we are. This is what you do. Put some ice in a cocktail shaker, and now add one ounce of Southern Comfort. To that, add one ounce of apricot brandy, one ounce of melon liqueur, 
or Midori, one ounce of blue curacao, and then finish it off with two ounces of sweet and sour mix. Homemade is best. Put all of this in your cocktail shaker, put the lid on it, give it a good shake. And now pour it into a rocks glass that's got some ice in it. And garnish it with a cherry. And there you go, my friends, a New Orleans original cocktail, the Mid-Atlantic Crisis. Hang on, it's going to blow you away. While searching for the subjects for his triptych, Puccini considered adapting three short stories by Max Gorky. While working on the development of this idea, his attention was turned to Dieter Gold's play La Hupalanda. La Hupalanda is considered a part of the Grand Guignol genre. Grand Guignol is characterized by sensational and horrific plots. The theater in Paris, where these types of plays were being produced, opened in 1897 and did not close until 1962. The genre is known for gory special effects and bloody climaxes. Think shock and awe. It offered audiences a wildly diverse evening, enabling them to see a crime drama, a sentimental play, and a comedy all in quick succession. In fact, the genre of horror as we know it today exists because of Grand Guignol. Some examples from the past few years include Sweeney Todd, the TV show Sleepy Hollow, the great movie Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, and the now-popular TV show Hannibal. The story of La Hupalanda is also similar to one of the Gorky plays Puccini had looked at, titled The Raft. Michele is a captain of a barge on the River Seine. He is being cheated on by his young wife, Giorgetta, with Luigi, a stevedore. On discovering the adulterer, Michele stabs Luigi and then wraps his body in a cloak. When Giorgetta appears, Michele unwraps the dead body from the cloak and pushes her down on top of the body of her dead lover. At the same time this is all happening, another stevedore, who is driven to drink because of his own wife's infidelities, stabs her upon returning home from a night of drinking. Of course, this part was eventually omitted from the opera. While researching the play for the libretto, Puccini wrote to his librettist, Adami, saying, quote, What I'm concerned for is that the Lady Sen should be the true protagonist of the drama. This lifestyle of the boatmen and stevedores dragging out their wretched existence in the traffic of the river, resigned to their lot, 
is in complete contrast to the longing that throbs in Georgetta's breast, a yearning for dry land, regret for the noisy clamor of the suburbs, for the lights of Paris. Love snatched at for the odd quarter of an hour is not enough for her. Her dream is to escape, to tread the pavements, to leave the cabin on the water where her child died. These are gleams and shadows that must give the crime a sharp and delicate flavor, like an etching. Upon receiving Puccini's letter, Adami set to work and finished the libretto within one week, record time. He sent the libretto to Puccini, who wrote back his very enthusiastic approval. The foundations for Il Tabaro were firmly laid. Side note, Il Tabaro is considered one of the last, if not the last, Verismo opera composed. Up to this point, Puccini had envisioned only two operas for the evening, one tragic and one comic. After receiving the libretto and starting the composition for Il Tabaro, Puccini reverted back to his original idea of three one-acts. He wrote to a friend, quote, I need a piece elevated in tone, possibly mystical, or religious. Puccini once again went back to the idea of the play The Two Little Wooden Shoes but then learned that Muscogny was in pursuit of the subject also. By the time Puccini had finished Il Tabaro in November of 1915, he still didn't have another subject to go with. He toyed with the idea of premiering it in a double bill with his first opera, La Ville. However, because of the war, there were not enough suitable singers available. Finally, Forzano, Muscogny's librettist, came to the rescue with two pieces of his own invention. The first, Swore Angelica, was originally written to be a spoken play. The play was about a nun of aristocratic lineage who, forced by her family to take the oath for having born an Ill- illegitimate child, takes poison after hearing from an unforgiving relative that her child has died. Her mortal sin is pardoned by the Virgin Mary who appears to her while she is dying.
The Virgin Mary then reveals her little son, and the two escort the fallen nun to heaven. Forzano wrote, quote, Puccini liked the subject very much. He told me to start writing the verses immediately, and then he rushed off to Milan to tell his publisher about it. This all took place during the first few weeks of 1917. Puccini turned to a friend, Pietro Panichelli, for helping with writing some of the liturgical text for the scene in which the Madonna appears. Puccini wanted a, quote, royal march of the Madonna. Panichelli provided the text to Puccini just as he had done for the liturgical text for Tosca's Te Deum scene. Puccini also had an inside source as far as the concerns and needs for material life inside a convent. One of his sisters was the mother superior for the convent at Vico Pelagio. Although her convent was a closed order, she obtained permission from the bishop for her brother to visit the premises. Here, he was able to try out passages from his new opera, for the assembled nuns, many of which were moved to tears. Puccini wrote to Tito Ricordi, quote, I can give you the best of news about Suor Angelica. The music is going ahead swiftly, and I'm sure you will share my enthusiasm when you hear the music. Suor Angelica threatens to become the grandmother superior of all operas. Suor Angelica belongs to a group of writings in the school of pathos and sentimentality. These are works that appeal to the emotions of the audience and elicit feelings that already reside inside them. The one-act opera is divided up into several scenes, each with its own title. The first is called The Prayer, then The Penances, then we have The Recreation, or as I like to call it, Nuns Gone Wild, The Return from Alms Collecting, The Princess, the grace, and then the final scene, the miracle. While composing Suor Angelica, Puccini was given the idea for the third installment, the comedy aspect for his trio. Forzano took his inspiration from a few lines of a master work we've already mentioned, Dante's Inferno, from the Divine Comedy. The subject matter, the Florentine rogue Johnny Schicchi cheated the Donati family out of an inheritance by impersonating the deceased Buozo Donati and dictating a new will in his own favor. 
For the sake of the opera, Forzano added the two lovers for whom Johnny Skiki was doing his deception. At first, Puccini was less than enchanted. He wrote to Adami, quote, I'm afraid that ancient Florence doesn't suit me, nor is it a subject that will appeal much to the general public. He urged Adami to think of a better idea. However, as Forzano developed his theme, Puccini's imagination took hold. He wrote to a friend that he was already deep into the composition for Johnny Skiki while still working on Swore Angelica. However, Swore Angelica was the first to be finished on September 14, 1917, and Johnny Skiki followed sometime quickly thereafter on April 20, 1918. Johnny Skiki is a throwback to the style of opera buffa. Opera buffa developed in Naples in the first half of the 18th century. Its popularity spread to Rome and then northern Italy. Some of the most famous examples of this genre are the three Mozart da Ponte operas and then the comedies of Rossini and Donizetti. Whereas opera seria was an entertainment that was both made for and depicted kings and nobility, opera buffa was made for and depicted common people with common problems. Side note, both Johnny Skiki and Buoso Donati were real people. Dante's verses and Puccini's opera are based on an actual incident that took place in 13th century Florence. And to add a little extra drama, Dante's wife was a member of the Donati family. During the composition of Il Tritico, Italy and Puccini we're going through some dark times. Italy was losing ground, literally, during the war, and then the Spanish flu took its toll on the population. Eighty victims in Toro del Lago, Puccini's home village, alone. One of Puccini's sisters died in August of 1918, and then Elvira, Puccini's wife, had another one of her huge fits of jealousy. To top it all off, Tonio, Puccini and Elvira's son, was caught up in a very unhappy love affair and attempted suicide by drug overdose. Fortunately, he survived. Puccini wrote to a friend, quote, Every day life becomes more difficult. But, as usual, with the completed work behind him, he was soon on the lookout for a new story for his next opera. He looked at Florence Montgomery's English novel, Misunderstood, 
The book was published in 1874 and centered around the eldest of two brothers who dies after saving the youngest from drowning. The opera never happened, but it has since been turned into an Italian film. Twice. The world premiere for Il Tritico remained a problem. It was suggested to Puccini that the work receive its premiere in Buenos Aires, but Puccini turned it down on the grounds that he would never allow so complex a work to be performed without having it first mounted in Italy. He did, however, agree to the world premiere being given at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City, even though at the time there seemed to be no possibility for his attendance. Finally, the premiere was set for December the 14th, 1918. Puccini would not be able to attend due to the danger of unexploded mines in the Atlantic and the sea crossing would not be possible. All Puccini had left to do for Il Tritico was a last-minute extension to Suor Angelica's aria Senza Mama. Puccini finished it and sent it off in October. Puccini explained his lateness in getting this done to Claudia Muzio, who premiered the role of Suor Angelica. He said, quote, Since with this piece, the part takes on greater importance, and besides, it isn't difficult to perform. After the premiere performance, the general consent was that the triumph belonged to Johnny Skiki. The reviews read, quote, so uproariously funny, full of life, humor, and ingenious devices. Another review, quote, gaiety, irresistible, as frothy and exhilarating as champagne. For Swore Angelica, there was hardly a good word, however. One critic wrote, quote, an obvious failure, the music far too lacking in refinement excessive repetition. Another wrote, quote, the appearance of the Virgin Mary was merely an illuminated Christmas card. Nevertheless, Il Tritico survived intact for two seasons before finally being dismembered. Swore Angelica, as expected, was the first to be dropped. More important to Puccini was the Italian premiere in Rome on January the 11th, 1919. As in New York, Johnny Skiki was the favorite, Swore Angelica was treated a little kindlier. One critic called it, quote, the poetic opera of the triptych. There were serious reservations over the ruthless verismo of Il Tabaro, a genre which was felt in Italy to have already run its course. Among those in the audience, the conductor Arturo Toscanini. Several years before, Toscanini had read the libretto and pronounced it, quote, 
utter trash. At the premiere, he left the theater after the curtain fell at the end of Il Tabaro. It is said he made no attempt to hide his disgust and called the opera, quote, another one of the Puccinian pigs. It had been planned for Toscanini to conduct the London premiere in 1920. This was now out of the question. Puccini wrote, quote, I won't have this God present. If he comes to London, I shan't come, which would be a great disappointment to me. When the London premiere did happen on June 18th, 1920, King George V and Queen Mary invited Puccini to their box to personally give him their congratulations. As with all Puccini operas, revisions were expected. In 1921, Puccini shortened Michele's aria in Il Tabaro, and then after not liking what he had done to it, he then decided to cut the aria altogether and just write a whole new one. This is the aria that is now performed today, Nulla Silencio. In 1922, he made a revision to Suor Angelica. After her aria, Senza Mama, Puccini cut the flower aria. This is what he had added in at the last minute. Most sopranos had been refusing to perform it anyway due to its difficulty, and so it became an easy cut for Puccini to make. The idea of a triple bill whose components complement one another was strictly Puccini's idea. However, it was Forzano who was able to find the necessary thread that links the three operas together. What's that link, you ask? Well, it's death. Death is treated brutally in the first piece, sentimentally in the second, and with cheerful cynicism in the third. It's Luigi's murder, Angelica's suicide, and the lifeless body of the patriarch of the family in Johnny Skiki. But it's the effect of death on those left living that drive the stories forward. Without the death of their child, Michaela and Giorgetta may have had a happier relationship, and she would not have taken a lover. And again, after learning the death of her child, who she says she only got to hold and kiss once before he was ripped away from her, Angelica then decided to take her own life. Perhaps had the child not died, she may not have committed a mortal sin. And in a comedic flare of genius, once Buoso Donati died, his blood-sucking relatives began to fight to find out who among them would receive the greatest of treasures, not yet knowing that they would soon be weeping real tears from the disappointment of their scheme gone wrong. Side note, my friends. Johnny Skiki was the last opera to be completed by Puccini. Yes, he still has Turandot to come, but he died before being able to finish. So, my friends, have you been enjoying that mid-Atlantic crisis? I hope so. As I said earlier, it's one of my favorite drinks. It's a staple here in our house. 
and the mischievous maestro and the Mrs. Mischievous Maestro. We always drink these. It always seems like when there's a hurricane brewing coming toward the United States. Anyway, I hope you're enjoying it. Speaking of storms, I want to share a few experiences that I've had with the Tritico, with each of the three individual operas. I've had the pleasure of conducting them multiple times, and it's always a treat when these come up. In fact, side note, right before the world shut down because of COVID-19, the very last production that I conducted was a double bill of Swarangelica and Johnny Skiki. So I think that's kind of a fun fact. My first experience with Il Tabaro was while I was working on my master's degree at the conservatory in Kansas City. And it was coming time. I was doing a master's in conducting and was conducting the operas at the conservatory. And it was coming time for me to choose my recital, my final conducting recital for the master's certificate. And I went to my mentor, still to this day, one of my very best friends. And I went to him and I said, I think I want to do an opera in concert for my recital. And he looked at me like I was a little crazy. And I said, and I want to do Puccini's Il Tabaro. It's a one act, it's 55 minutes. I think it's some of the most concise, perfect music, most perfectly paced music that Puccini wrote. He said, well, he said, I don't know it. He said, uh, but uh, give me the score and a recording. And so I loaned him uh, a copy of my score and my favorite recording, which, by the way, is what you've been hearing excerpts from throughout the episode. And so, but I'll tell you more about that in a moment. He came to me a couple days later and said, well, if you can pull this off, then you will definitely earn your master's degree. And so um, I knew I had the orchestra. That was part of the deal. And, but I had to find the cast. And so I, I went to all of my friends at the conservatory and I bribed them to do this, which it really didn't take much. We put a small little chorus together. I had six rehearsals with the orchestra. I did a piano rehearsal with the cast. And then we did my master's conducting recital in April of 1999. And we did a concert performance of Il Tabaro. To this day, it still remains one of my favorite recordings of any of my performances to listen to. It was just a magical, magical day. I've done Tabaro a few times since then, but I always in my mind go back to that night, that performance of Tabaro. Swarangelica, it's, it's a pretty one. It's always one that gives me goosebumps. But there's some funny things that have happened in uh, some productions that I've had the pleasure of working on. And I'm going to tell you a couple of them. So one of the productions of Swarangelica that I was conducting, I'm not going to say exactly which one, but it was the one right before the world shut down. The Principessa, uh, the aunt, Swarangelica's aunt, was going to make her entrance in a car. It was this really cool 1940s-ish, somewhere up in there, Studebaker. It was just this really amazing car. Uh, of course, we're on the inside in, the, in a theater. And in the first dress rehearsal, or maybe it was the second dress rehearsal, I don't remember. She's in the car. You hear the car start. We have that great interlude. The music stops. And then she's supposed to make her entrance. Well, she comes piling out of this car, gasping for air. I guess the exhaust in the car wasn't really working. And the inside of the car had filled with car exhaust, carbon monoxide, all of those fun things that singers love to breathe before having to sing. We came to a screeching halt in that rehearsal so she could catch her breath. 
Unfortunately, the car was cut, so that car's opera debut was axed before it actually got to happen. Uh, Side note, the production went on without a hitch, and she recovered beautifully after being in the car for that one rehearsal and sang the pants off of that role and remains to this day one of my favorite principesses that I've gotten to work with. Another funny one, toward the end of Swarnjalaka, after she has sung Senza Mama and she's now making her poison potion, um, she's in her herb garden, she's pulling all the herbs to, to muddle to make this perfect cocktail. Oh, there you go, a cocktail. Um, so she's making this cocktail and to, of poison to, to kill herself. And she's reaching for this one particular plant. And I guess it wasn't really set right on stage. It was supposed to be just this little pluck of a plant that comes out. And instead, she pulls the entire plant, roots and all, soil dangling and falling while she's singing this very serious moment. And of course, she had to continue. So she just puts it into her little pot that she was, quote unquote, cooking the poison in and is muddling the roots and the dirt and the herbs and all of that stuff. Johnny Skeeky, it's a comedy. I mean, there's just so many things. One time, the gentleman that was playing Buoso Donati, now remember, he dies. He's, he's dead. I mean, when the curtain rises, he does nothing. He's just supposed to lay there. And then he becomes a prop. He's pushed around and all of that stuff. But I guess the particular actor that was playing Buoso Donati, and usually it's done by a local celebrity or someone like that, but this particular gentleman was taking being dead a little too serious and actually fell asleep during a performance and started snoring while he's supposed to be dead. Of course, the audience laughed. The people on stage were mortified and I'm sure made a great bit out of it. In another production, actually a production that I uh, did recently, the gentleman playing Buoso Donati was hidden into a trunk when Johnny Skeeky comes on, when the notary comes in, they have to hide the real dead body. And so they uh, put him into the trunk to hide the body. And, and then, of course, the, the actor has to stay in this trunk, or sometimes it's a closet or wherever they decide to shove the body for 20, 25 minutes or so. There have been stories of people playing solitaire while they're hanging out, doing nothing. The audience can't see them, falling asleep, whatever. This particular production that I was working on, the gentleman that was put into the trunk. Uh, there was a lot of action going on on top of the trunk. And basically he said that he spent most of the time fearing for his life, that the lid to the trunk was going to crash open and three or four people were going to fall on top of him. He survived, had a wonderful time, and now he's the board president of that opera company. So there you go, my friends. If you want to run an opera company, just put your life in danger. Another really fun thing that uh, has happened in Johnny Skiki. So the relatives have to find Boso Donati's will. He's died. They want to find the will to see who gets what. Um, and of course, that's what propels the story forward. In one production, the props master, the person responsible for putting the, the props and stuff on stage, I guess, for either forgot to put the prop on stage or placed it somewhere where it was not supposed to go. They never found the will on stage as they're frantically looking for it. It's a pretty funny scene anyway, while they're tearing Abuoso Donati's bedroom apart looking for the will, but this time they literally tore it apart looking for the will, which was never to be found, and wound up having to use something else in place of the will. This was not a rehearsal. This was a performance. So there you go. Just some fun little stories to give you a little uh, different take on the operas. To borrow a course being all brooding and serious and veristic, 
Swore being beautiful and weepy, and Skiki being nothing but genius comedy. I would like to recommend a particular recording of the Tritico for you, and it's the recording that you've been hearing the excerpts from throughout this episode. It's conducted by the late, great Lauren Mazel, and it has Tito Gobi, Placido Domingo, and Renata Scotto singing. Check it out. You'll absolutely love it. It's available on CD, on vinyl, and you can even find it on your iTunes or uh, whatever music service that you use. Reading. You should add to your library a really cool book. It's called Il Trittico, Turandot, and Puccini's Late Style. It's written by Andrew Davis. If you are like me and you are a complete music nerd, or if you're like me and a complete Puccini fanatic, you must have this book in your library. It goes into such detail, but not only does it go into this is the story, blah, 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 it goes into theoretical detail an actual theoretical analysis of these operas. So again, if you're like me and a complete music nerd, this book is a must. My friends, we've come to the point in our episode where I opened the old email inbox and up popped a fun email all the way from Norway, from Ingen. Hi, Ingen. Ingen asks, in today's performance practice, usually only two of the three are performed, and Il Tabaro is the one that's the performed the least. Why is that? Ingen, that's a really excellent question. I'm just going to tell you my personal opinion of why I think that is. Obviously, I can't speak for every opera company in uh, the United States and in the world. But remember, we talked about uh, Tabaro is a Verismo opera. It's very serious. Murder, Grand Guignol, all of that dark theater. A lot of people think that paired with Swore Angelica, where there's a suicide, and then eventually, finally, you get to the comedy, that it's just too long of an evening. Even Puccini wrote in a letter that he said that the evening was as long as a transatlantic cable. However, he always, Puccini always remained adamant that the opera should always be performed together in one evening the way that he wrote it. Although we know that two years after the world premiere, while Puccini was still alive, the Trittico was already being broken up with Swore and Skiki being the two that were being performed uh, or being paired with other one-act operas. Now, it's interesting, you know, Swore Angelica was the one that got the, the worst reviews during the premiere and Tabaro and Skiki got the best reviews. But now, today, it's Swore that's being performed over Tabaro. I think a lot of it is also swore is it's a religious piece. It's a sentimental piece. It's a piece that tugs at the heartstrings. And I think that that's a piece that people can relate to, not in the whole nuns committing suicide thing, but it's just the pathos, the humanity of a woman learning of losing a child and the collapse of the thought around her and the, the need and the want. She says in the opera, that as my child was ripped away from me, I only got to kiss him and hug him and hold him once. It just, it pulls at the heartstrings. And I think that it, uh, people just relate to that and they want something that way instead of a murder, watching a murder on stage and adultery and all of that. We've got enough adultery in opera anyway. I think Tabaro is cut simply because it is considered too dark of a subject. 
And if you keep all three together, it's a very, very, very long evening in the theater. I've conducted it as a complete tritico once. And by the time you put intermissions and all that, it's a four-hour evening in the theater. So, Ingen, that's an excellent question. The second question that we have today comes from Steve and Doug in Palm Springs. Hi, guys. Steve and Doug ask, of the three operas in the Tritico, which is your favorite to conduct and why? Hands down, I, I love all three, uh, and I'm always honored to get to do any of them, but hands down, Il Tabaro. As I said uh, a little bit earlier, I think it's 55 minutes of the most concise, perfectly paced music that Puccini composed. The subject matter is amazing. I love the source play, the Dieter Gold play La Hupalanda that the opera is based on, but I just love this opera. I, it starts out, as soon as the, the curtain rises and you hear the music, you feel the river. You see it, you can hear it, the undulating movement of the, the river. You can feel the, the mist rising off of it. It's the, the most, one of the most beautiful orchestrations. Puccini also uses some actual real sound effects. He uses car horns, tugboat horns, all of this stuff in the orchestration to create this real, this veristic effect. And then the, the singing starts and the story just breaks my heart. Georgette and Michele, their lives pulled apart. He's 50, she's 25-ish, but they're married and th their lives completely shattered by the death of their child which happens, of course, before the curtain rises. The heartbreak, the sorrow that, that is in their vocal lines and just in their voices. Again, going back to the orchestration, Puccini was a master orchestrator. It's just an amazing score. It's always the one I look forward to the most when I get to do all three together, or if I'm hired to conduct a double bill of Tabaro and Sometimes it's paired with Pagliacci or something like that. It's the one I really look forward to the most. And I find myself more times than not, if I'm just hanging out, sitting at home, and I want to listen to an opera, specifically a Puccini opera, it's Tabaro that I put on. It's hard to explain. I can't tell you why. It's perfection. I truly, truly, truly think it's perfection. And maybe it has something to do with the fact that it was the last Verismo opera to be composed, or one of the last. That was definitely Puccini's last Verismo opera that he composed, and I love that time period in Italian opera. So maybe that has something to do with it as well. But Steve and Doug, that's my answer to borrow, because it's 55 minutes of kick-ass drama. My friends, I would like to take a moment to give a shout-out. This is not to a company, but this is to a group. And that is all of the artists, the musicians, the technicians, everyone involved in the performing arts right now in this country that's shut down because of this horrible pandemic that we're battling, COVID-19. We need the arts more than anything in the world right now because the arts give us truth, beauty, and honesty. And those are three things, my friends, that we need more than anything else in the world right now today so if you know an artist if you know a singer a musician a technician anyone that works in the performing arts let them know that you support them that you're there for them let them know that they are important because i can tell you 
we're feeling a little lost right now. And it's a little scary not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring. We need to save the stages. We need to save our arts. We need to save our professions. So this shout out goes to all of my colleagues, all of my brothers and sisters in the arts. Hang in there, my friends. We're going to get to the end of this and we're going to be so much better when it's over. I love you all. I'm here with you. I'm holding you in my thoughts. Hang in there. I love you. Join us next time as we go back to the beginning to explore La Ville, Puccini's first opera. We'll watch the young composer go from conservatory student to Milan celebrity. While discussing, we'll be sipping on a Pimm's cup. Until then, my friends, stay thirsty for knowledge. The Mischievous Maestro podcast is researched and written by me, Andy Anderson. Recording engineer and co-producer is Ryan Hall. Art director and co-producer, Jefferson Reidenauer. Very personal assistant to The Mischievous Maestro and co-producer, Megan Keene. Production assistant, co-producer, and all-round great guy is Yvonne Kahn. Publicist for Andy Anderson is Jonathan Blaylock. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite platform to get all of the upcoming episodes with exciting drinks. To learn more about The Mischievous Maestro and for the drink recipes, visit our website, themischievousmaestro.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mischievous Maestro is so much more than a podcast. It's a lifestyle. I would like to remind you to please drink responsibly. If you're not old enough, don't do it. And if you are old enough, do it in moderation. And if you're having a bad day and refuse to drink in moderation, then please follow these simple rules for overindulgence. Please don't drink and drive. Please don't drink too much and then email your boss asking for a raise. And please, for all that's holy in the world, don't drink too much and then drunk text your ex at 3 a.m. This podcast is the sole property of the mischievous maestro and may not be used in whole or any part without the express written permission of Andy Anderson.